Please turn in your Bible, if you would, to Acts chapter 23. Now, just to explain what we're doing this morning, uh, we, we're in the middle of a series in Acts. We have just three more Sundays on our, on our um, planned journey through this book. And that means over the next three Sundays, we're going to be covering some larger portions of this book. And you might have seen an email yesterday morning just with an encouragement to, if you have the time each Sunday, to just read ahead. We're not going to be able to cover everything in all of these chapters. And so if you want to come on a Sunday having read the appropriate chapters, that would be a great way to um, prepare our hearts for a Sunday morning. This morning we're looking at Acts 21 to 23, but as you'll soon see, there is one particular verse that I want to help us to hone in on in particular. But first of all, let me ask you to think about this. Have you ever made the decision to walk into a situation that you knew was going to be difficult? Maybe you decided to confront someone over something that they've done wrong. Maybe you've waded into someone else's argument and trying to make peace between two people that are at each other. I don't know if anyone's ever run into a burning building to actually save lives, but that would be impressive. Or maybe you've taken the brave and risky step of stepping out and sharing the gospel with someone who you think is probably going to be quite hostile to it. As we, as we continue following Paul's missionary journey throughout this book of Acts, you might recall that last week he told the Ephesian elders in the church at Ephesus that he was intent on going to Jerusalem. And he knows it's going to be difficult. Here's what he said to them, Acts 20 verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is on his way now to Jerusalem, even though he knows that suffering awaits him there. And meeting with old friends along the way throughout chapter 21, they know that suffering awaits Paul there as well. And so because they love him, they keep telling him, don't go. Oh, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They say to him, the Holy Spirit has told us that you're going to suffer there. We don't want you to go. One friend, Agabus, goes a step further still. Paul stops off in a town called Caesarea, and in Acts 21, verse 10, while, the, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, I don't know about you, I would find that a pretty compelling warning. This, Agabus has just taken Paul's own belt and bound his own hands and feet and told him, he would be telling us, this is what they'll do to you if you carry on going where you're going. And seeing this, all of the other believers around Paul, again, they love Paul, Paul's their friend. They urge him all the more not to go to Jerusalem. Don't go, Paul, we don't want you to suffer. Take the gospel somewhere else, anywhere but Jerusalem. Well, how would you respond? Think about that. How would you respond, especially with Agabus there before you now wearing some of your clothes and, and acting out what's going to happen? Maybe on the one hand, you would think they're all overreacting. 
We perhaps wouldn't believe Agabus. We tell him, don't be such a pessimist. If I'm doing the Lord's work, he won't let any harm come to me. I'm a Christian. I'll be fine. Or maybe we would believe Agabus. I think, I think there's many of us in here that would be more likely to believe Agabus. And believing him, we would shake him by the hand. We would thank him for the very timely warning. And we would change our plans completely to avoid suffering. So we'd either disbelieve and carry on or we'd believe and run away. But Paul does neither. He believes that suffering awaits him, but he isn't swayed from carrying on. In fact, he says something quite incredible. Chapter 21, verse 13. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, the question I want to help us answer together this morning is, how is it Paul can say he's ready to suffer? How is it that he's not only prepared to suffer, but even able to walk into it knowing it's coming? How can he say, whatever the cause or reason, I am ready to suffer if God wills? Let's be clear up front here. It is not that Paul is some kind of Christian superhero. We've already seen in Acts, Paul wrestles with doubts and fears like the rest of us. His knees still knock, his stomach still turns when storm clouds gather and trials descend. And even his resolve now to go to Jerusalem doesn't mean that when he gets there and the suffering actually comes, that he's going to be impervious to pain and impervious to discouragement. On the contrary, the opposition he meets with there is intense and it has an effect on him soon after his arrival a crowd of a crowd of angry opponents and these are his own people his own countrymen they surround him and they lay hands on him they make false accusations against him and then they incite the whole city to run at him seize him and beat him with the intent of killing him he's then rescued by roman soldiers who bound him in bind him in chains and interrogate him. And in fact, they decide in chapter 22, verse 24, to interrogate him essentially by torturing him. They stretch him out to flog him. Uh, and this was a kind of Roman interrogation that was notorious and, and so horrendous that in some cases it would result in the death of the victim. It was the very same kind of flogging that was given to Jesus just before his crucifixion. Now, fortunately, Paul realizes at the last moment he can appeal to his Roman citizenship and he challenges them. Verse 25, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned and the soldiers back down? But we can only imagine the physical and emotional toll that this rough treatment must have taken on Paul. And, and this heightened sense of danger that was now all around him. Again, Paul is only human. And still they continue to verbally interrogate him until the Jewish onlookers become so violent again that the soldiers have to take Paul and for his own safety lock him away for fear that his own people will tear him to pieces. Uh, can you just imagine, let's put ourselves in Paul's shoes for a moment. Just imagine being in a place, in a city where everybody is against you, where the whole city full of people is opposed to us and opposed to what we stand for and opposed to our message. Paul was prepared for suffering, yes. 
And he could even resolve to walk on into it, but that didn't mean he wasn't left feeling bruised and worn down and alone. Kent Hughes writes, this was one of the darkest nights of Paul's life. His heart ached. He was physically, emotionally and spiritually tired. Even the most optimistic person can experience a low after a battle. Consider Elijah and Paul was in the depths. As he sat in Antonia, he was utterly humiliated, alone, dejected, dispirited. And maybe you are sat here this morning experiencing some measure of soul-wearying suffering in your life right now. Maybe you feel like you're in a dark night that's left you feeling physically, emotionally, and spiritually drained. It might be because of illness or uncertainty about your health. It might be out of heartache and concern for someone you love. It might be because of relational difficulties or the sins of some other person. It might be because of persecution and opposition in some place because of what you believe. Whatever the cause or reason, the question our passage, our verse is going to help us answer this morning is how does Paul carry on? How does he keep putting one foot in front of the other? How does he battle with that fear of what might happen next? And how does he keep on in the midst of all of that? How does he keep believing and serving and speaking for Jesus even while the world seems to be against him? The key, I believe, to his continuing faith and assurance is encapsulated in, in this one particular verse. Chapter 23, verse 11. So if you have a Bible, please keep it open and look at that verse. This verse, which is going to be our focus this morning, is like a beacon of hope in the midst of the darkest of circumstances. Because in this verse, the Lord himself draws near to give hope and encouragement. And that's really what I... I genuinely believe that is what the Lord wants to do for us this morning, especially those who are presently suffering in whatever way. He wants to draw near and give us this same encouragement that he gave to the Apostle Paul. This encouragement, it consists of three things, three truths, three reminders, all of which are just as real and as vital for us as they were for Paul. The first is a reminder of the Lord's presence. That's our first heading this morning, the Lord's presence. The verse begins, the following night, the Lord stood by him. Did Jesus physically appear to Paul in his cell? We don't know. We can't say for sure. Or was it just that he gave him in his heart such a renewed sense of his presence that Paul could not doubt that the Lord is here? What we can know for sure is that what the Lord revealed to Paul is true for all God's children that the Lord is always present with us. Always present with us and even more keenly when we suffer. In fact, I think there's a two-for-one encouragement here. If you like a two-for-one deal, we have that here. In this simple statement, the Lord stood by him. It tells us, first of all, that the Lord knows us and he knows our circumstances intimately. He knows our situation Wherever we are, he knows our state of mind. He knows what we are facing. We are never out of his sight. As one writer puts it, Jesus knows his sheep by name and by need. He knows your name and he knows your every need. No jail cell, no 
sickness, no fear, no doubt, no despondency in our own minds can in any way cloud his intimate knowledge of our location and our situation and our condition. He will never, ever lose sight of where we are. Spurgeon tells the story of a Quaker who came to see John Bunyan in prison. And he said to him, the Quaker said to Bunyan, Friend, the Lord sent me to you and I have been seeking for you in half the prisons in England. Nay, verily, said Bunyan, that cannot be. For if the Lord had sent you to me, you would have come here at once. For the Lord knows where I am. And then Spurgeon, as he tells this story, he goes on to sweetly reassure his listeners. He says, God has not a single jewel laid by and forgotten. Thou, God, seest me is a great consolation. Many and diverse are the prisons of affliction in which the Lord's servants are shut up. One may be lying in the prison of pain, chained by the leg or by the hand through accident or disease. Or perhaps he is shut up in the narrow cell of poverty or in the dark room of bereavement or in the dungeon of mental depression. But the Lord knows in what ward his servant is shut up and he will not leave him to pine away forgotten. The Lord knows us and he always knows what assails us. He has not and will not ever lay us aside or forget us. And that is the first thing that his standing by us tells us. He knows our need. But the second of that two for one offer, he's also with us. He is with us. He is always with us. And being with us, his presence sustains us. Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. For, Psalm 109, he stands at the right hand of the needy one. And then standing at our right hand, he says, Isaiah 41, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The experience of Paul in his jail cell and the experience that we will have in our metaphorical jail cells is not unlike that of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. You remember their story in the book of Daniel as they were pushed into the fiery furnace? Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar said, we, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And then in a fury, you know the story, having ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual, Nebuchadnezzar throws them in, locks the door, and then in his amazement, he sees the Lord in the furnace with them. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire, he says to his advisors, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Lord himself was with them in the furnace. And just think about the difference that his presence would have made. Just think about the difference that the Lord's presence made to Paul in his cell that night. Think about a parent. This is sort of the image that quickly came to my mind. Think about a parent drawing near to their child when they're in distress. 
You know, maybe, maybe the child's fallen over, or they've woken up from a bad dream, or they've become momentarily separated from their mum or dad in the supermarket. That's a terrifying thing as a child, isn't it? What's one of the best things that a parent can say to their child to reassure them? I think high up on the leaderboard is this. Don't worry. I'm here. Nothing can harm you when you're with me. That is the ultimate reassurance from a parent to a child. And that is nothing less than the reassurance that God gives to us in his word today. The Lord is with us in our time of need. He made Paul's dark dungeon flame with light and flame with hope. In the light of his presence, the Lord stood by him and strengthened him. Even if no one else can fully understand whatever trial or difficulty you're going through this morning, the Lord not only knows, but he enters into it with you fully. He sympathizes with us perfectly. He shares in our afflictions and gives us hope. And so our enemies, maybe one day they will put us in a cell, in an empty cell, but we will never be alone. That cell will never be empty because Jesus will always be there. And this reminder revived Paul's spirits. Spurgeon again says, If all else forsook him, Jesus was company enough. If all others despised him, the smile of Jesus was patronage enough. If the good cause seemed in danger, in the presence of his master, victory was sure. The Lord who had stood for him at the cross now stood by him in the prison. The Lord who had called him out of heaven, who had washed him in his blood, who had commissioned him to be his servant, who had sustained him in labors and trials oft, now visited him in his solitary cell. It was a dungeon, but the Lord was there. It was dark, but the glory of the Lord lit it up with heaven's own splendor. Better to be in a jail with the Lord than to be in heaven without him. Isn't that true? Better to be in a jail with the Lord than in heaven without him. Whoever or whatever is against us, we needn't fear because the Lord is with us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And yet there's more. And yet there is more. I feel like that ship, that's enough, isn't it? No, 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 there's more. God says, no, there is more. I have more encouragement for you this morning. Not only is he with us, but the Lord then speaks to us. So second heading this morning, the Lord's voice. Paul hears the Lord's voice. Think for a moment about the last time you were wearied and burdened and discouraged for whatever reason. And then think, I hope maybe a friend or a family member or a neighbor, they came alongside you. What is it you most appreciated about their presence with you at the time that most helped you? What is so good about having someone with us when we're going through difficulty? Uh, various things might come to mind. Uh, maybe you think, well, they can make me some food. That's quite nice, very comforting. Or they make me a cup of tea. Someone's there to fill my hot water bottle. Someone could read a book to me. Uh, they could run a bath for me. They could wait on me. Well, those are all good things, good tips for us if we're caring for someone at the moment. But I think what we actually value most, apart from their, just their very presence with us, is to hear their voice speaking words of comfort to us. To hear their words of tender comfort and care. To hear them speak words of reassurance to our burdened and heavy hearts. But I wonder, do we think of our Saviour as speaking tenderly like that? 
He's, he's, he's the king of everything, isn't he? Do we think of him, though, as speaking tenderly? I hope that we do, because he certainly does. In fact, even the voice of our kindest, uh, kindest earthly friend just fades into a whisper compared to the strong and tender voice of Jesus when he speaks comfort right into the midst of our fearful hearts. And here the Lord begins by speaking a word in Paul's ear that I, that I would sort of put money on. That's probably not the right thing to do, but I would put money on it being one of Jesus' favorite words to us. It's just one word in the Greek, tharsio, and it means take courage, take heart. Every time Jesus uses this word in the New Testament, it brings the most wonderful comfort to fearful hearts. Uh, I found a summary that Kent Hughes did this week, and I, I couldn't sum it up better than him. So he draws these verses together. He says, Jesus used this word to call to the bedridden par paralytic. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. To the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has saved you. To his frightened disciples as he came to them across the storm-tossed sea of Galilee, he said, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And in the upper room on the night of his crucifixion, he said, Take heart. I have overcome the world. This is Christ's unique word for all who are trying to serve him, however feebly, how that must have soothed Paul's soul. Don't you just love, here is something for us to give great thanks for this morning. Don't you just love that this is the heart of our Savior towards us. That this is the word that he speaks to us again and again. It was Jesus that taught us out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is what overflows from Jesus' heart. This is what comes from his lips to us. Take courage. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And his voice is not distant. It is not austere. It is not in any way lacking in understanding of our frailty and weakness. Jesus is not just a man of action who says, I've, I've I've come and I've executed my plan of rescue. I've accomplished the work of salvation that was given to me. Now you're on your own. I'll see you in heaven. That is not our saviour. No, he understands our brokenness. He sympathises with us in our weaknesses. He draws near to speak words of divine and tender comfort. The one who spoke the universe into being with the word of his mouth. The one who said to the storm, be calm and, and, and it was still. He now speaks these words of tender reassurance to our souls. Night and day, take heart. These are his words to us on every occasion. And so the Lord is present with us in all our trials and difficulties. He is present with us with a tender and reassuring voice. And thirdly and finally, he makes a promise to us. So third and final heading this morning, the Lord's promise. Uh, the Bible, as you know, is full of the Lord's promises to us. It is chock full of promises. Uh, isn't that a wonderful thing that God has given us a book? It is his word to us. And there, is, there are promises aplenty on every page. Again, this is the heart of God towards us. So many promises that have the power to instill fresh hope and peace to our souls. But here the Lord makes a very particular promise to Paul about his future. So look at verse 11 one more time. Take 
courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It may be Paul, judging by recent events, is thinking, my, my mission is over. Maybe my life is over. Certainly my work is over. He has dreamed for so long of taking the gospel to Rome. But everything seems to be conspiring against him now, stopping him ever getting to that place. Everyone in Jerusalem is against him. Both Jews and Romans have captured and imprisoned him. On multiple occasions in these last few days, he's been not far from execution. He's surely now wondering if he'll ever make it to Rome at all until it is that he hears the Lord say to him, you will make it to Rome. You will most certainly testify about me in Rome. Imagine the encouragement that must have been to Paul to hear what the Lord had planned for him. His present circumstances and and surroundings, they suggest that Paul is going nowhere, but God says otherwise and therefore no prison cells, no bars on the windows, no armed guards or hostile opponents can now stand in Paul's way because the Lord has promised And in fact, in the following months as Paul travels to Rome, again, it's not an easy journey. We'll see this in the coming weeks. However difficult the obstacles that he meets with, he must have received great encouragement from this promise we're looking at this morning. He's going to meet with assassination attempts, legal delays, storms and shipwrecks and even snake bites. Events that could well have cast him into more despair and despondency except that he now has a sure and certain promise about his future to hold on to from the Lord. Okay, but we might ask ourselves, where is the help and encouragement for us in this? We don't have a, a promise, not about a holiday in Rome or, or, or about whatever lies around the corner for us. We don't receive special apostolic revelation from the Lord like, the, like Paul did, telling us exactly what awaits us in our immediate future nor should we expect to. The Lord doesn't tell us where we'll be or in what way we'll be serving him a year from now. He doesn't tell us the specifics about the events that lie in our future, though he does, of course, assure us about our eternal future. So where is the encouragement here for us this morning? Is there anything helpful here in this promise to Paul for us as well? Well, Yes, I think there certainly is. Here is why, because at the real heart of the Lord's reassurance to Paul is is not the mere detail about getting to Rome. At the heart of it is the certain promise that Paul's future is in God's hands. His future is in his hands. I wonder if you've come across the poem Invictus. And you might not have known this was a poem, but you may have heard of the Invictus Games Uh, I assume the the games were inspired by the poem, which was written in 1875 by a man called William Ernest Henley. And the message of this poem, I'll read you a bit in a moment. The message of the poem is is that we should never lose hope, no matter the circumstances. And And that's really good. That's a great bit. That's the best bit, really. But here's the reason he gives, and this bit's not so good. He says it's because we ourselves control our own fate and decide our own future. You probably recognize the words of the final verse. It says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that can sound so noble and 
rousing and aspirational. It, a, it puts us in the driving seat of our lives. It puts our fate in our own hands. And for a second, we might think that's a good thing. We might think at times it would be so good if our future was in our hands. That if only we could get to decide what will happen to us at every turn, all would be well. But let's be real. It really wouldn't, would it? Our future in our, in our hands, it would in fact be a terrible and frightening thing to be masters of our own fate. Do we really think we could be wiser or more loving in deciding our future than God? That we could work things out better, more for our good than the Lord could? There'd be no safety there. Honestly, uh, and this might just, some of you would nod your heads at this, uh, even if, because you know what I'm like, even if I was just the captain of a small rowing boat, let alone my own soul, sooner or later that boat would be dashed against the rocks and all would be lost. When we think about it for a moment, we don't really want to be the masters of our own fates and the captains of our own souls. Much better to have God fully in control and to trust him with all our days. And I think it is that that most encourages Paul. Jesus could well have visited Paul in his cell that night and said to him, Paul, I, 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 just, I haven't ordained it that you will make it to Rome. You're not going to make it to Rome. You're staying here in Jerusalem and I think still Paul would have been encouraged at the reminder that his future is safely in the Lord's hands. That it's not in the hands of his opponents or persecutors. It's not in the hands of health or sickness or accident or blind fate. And that is the promise that Jesus makes to us every time he draws near to us in our trials and difficulties. He says, every circumstance is under my control. And most importantly of all, you are in my hands. And knowing that, we can respond like the psalmist in Psalm 31. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Whatever situation and circumstances the Lord has placed us in, however tough the opposition might be right now to serve him, however tough the opposition to speak up boldly once again as his witnesses today, we can carry on doing so with the utmost confidence because we know our times are in his hands. We know that he is our God and our saviour and therefore all will be well. Let us then, like Paul, take courage in the Lord. Let us take courage in his unfailing presence. Let us take courage in his reassuring voice. Let us take courage in his sure and certain promise that every detail of our lives is in his hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us an all-sufficient and ever-present Saviour in the person of your Son. Oh Lord, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you for the comfort and encouragement of your voice in times of difficulty. That in every trial and every kind of hardship, you who calm the mighty storms with a word, say to our hearts, take courage, take heart, be at peace. Oh Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come to live permanently within us, to manifest our Saviour's presence to us in a multitude of ways, Every day, most of all in our times of suffering. 
please, we pray, renew and sustain in us the confidence of the Apostle Paul to believe that you control and direct all things in our lives for our eternal good and for your eternal glory, we pray. Amen.